Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Hey everyone, welcome to Teeth and Titanium episode 5. This is our September episode. Oscar, how's it going? It's been good. September is obviously a busier month for you than it is for me. Way, way busier in that sense. Exactly. So a little bit peek behind the curtain. We are recording a little bit in advance. So by the time you're listening to this, who knows? Exam could be done. Baby could be here. Tough to say. Tough to say what the future is going to hold. Two big things right there. Two big things. Oh, and did you, um, mention, but we did you mention the gender reveal on the podcast yet? I didn't. I think you should let everybody know. I, Tony mentioned it actually in the August episode. While he was saying it, I was like, oh, spoiler alert. I'm not sure if I've actually said the gender on the podcast, but I mean, drum roll here. Dun, 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 dun. We're having a boy. That's awesome. And again, of course, I already knew, yeah. but that's awesome for everyone else to hear. That's really exciting news. Yeah, the the our Oscar and Wendell really friends <laughs> fan club will be like, see, I told know. you. <laughs> see, I told you yeah, they hate each yeah. other. No, we're very excited, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll for sure in a future episode let you know how everything went. As a first time parent, it's gonna. I'm sure all the listeners that have children know especially the fathers out there, it's overwhelming and you don't really know what's going on. And we're oral surgeons. We're used to being in control type A people. This is like completely out of your control. You it's very foreign will control feeling. nothing for a little while in your life when this happens. Yeah, exactly. So definitely exciting, but definitely scary. But we wanted to make sure we came to you with your regular teeth and titanium content. So what we've done here is we've kind of done one really big mega episode that we were able to record and then divide it into two parts. And the first part is gonna be our September issue, and the second part is gonna be our October episode. And that allows us to bring you content, but also frees Oscar and up just to make sure we're able to prepare for other things, especially myself as we I'll mentioned say, the exam. Don't throw me under the bus there. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess you would have been available. This is, this is, this is definitely for, for me, I'll, I'll bear that cross for this one. So the topic, of these two episodes is something I'm extremely passionate about. And that's money and <laughs> money. financial planning. <laughs> yeah, I guess we can just, we just end it. I'm extremely passionate about yeah. money. No, I really like the world of investing and financial planning and just little tips and tricks to kind of help yourself out as you start off in your career. And also even when you're a veteran in your career and you know taking care of your family and family planning and things like that. And one of the funny anecdotes I'll share is that one of my former staff at McGill, Michelle Alakim, he is obsessed with this topic. He loves it. And what happened was when I was in R5 and R6 and we we're operating together all the time, we would just talk nonstop about index funds and investments and all the crazy stuff happening in the world. We talk about podcasts we listen to and different books we've read and things like that. And it got to the point where we had a couple of cases in my final year of the flaps they had complications. They had to go back to the OR. The artery clotted, the vein clotted, uh, the flap was failing. There was a hematoma. There were two distinct cases I remember where, you know, Dr. Al-Akim and I did the flap and my co-chief, Ahmed, and Dr. McCool did the resection. And what Ahmed said after the second one is, you know, I think just anecdotally looking at this, both our flap, because I think it was two of maybe three or four for the year. It was like, you know, what I've realized is I'm seeing a trend here. 
<laughs> and the trend is when Wendell and Dr. Alakim are doing the flap. There's too much money. They talk. spend two, two hours talking about investments that they don't focus on the surgery. <laughs> and that's why we're getting the failures. So I responded. I said, listen, when I look at the evidence here of our year, there's always a common denominator. Dr. Alakim is the attending staff. You got to blame him. So you him. threw him under the bus. No uh, questions threw, asked, eh? I, I threw him under the bus and Dr. Al-Akim did what he usually does and called me a choice Arabic swear word that I won't mention <laughs> on this podcast. But everyone at McGill that's listening knows what it is. It starts with an S. And uh, yeah, so he's extremely passionate. I'm extremely passionate. This is something that we don't get educated on at all. And so in that, is, that is exactly right. And so I may be a latecomer to this topic, but I could not have been more excited when we decided that this was going to be the topic we're going to talk about, because yeah, once you graduate, I was like, oh, wow, there's, there's a whole field or a whole world that I had no idea about that we really should be taught about in school, because let's not sugarcoat it. We obviously do this profession because we enjoy it and we like it and we were driven to do something, but you're also going to get reimbursed quite well for doing this profession. But if you don't know what to do or how to invest the money that you make, a lot of it can go to waste or just not, you're not maximizing. So knowing this world, I think is very important. And I think we should be taught more of it. So it was great that this is being part of the podcast. Exactly. So whenever it comes to a topic like this, it's always a little bit controversial. The first thing is we're talking about money. Everyone's very defensive about their money, their investments, how much money they make. No one really wants to yep. talk about that. We wanted to get ahead of this conversation and, and put out some some information right away, some caveats to this interview. So I was able to do a one-on-one interview with Ben Felix from PWL Capital. So the first thing I'll say is that for those that don't know Ben Felix, he is famous in Canada. And what I mean by famous is he has a YouTube channel called Common Sense Investing that has almost 150,000 YouTube subscribers. He has a podcast called The Rational Reminder Podcast that has thousands of listeners every single week. And for those of you that have watched his YouTube videos or will go on to watch his YouTube videos or listen to his podcast, and once you listen to this interview, you're going to immediately see that we are not bringing on a salesman. He's not here and we're not here to sell you any products. He's not taking your money. We have no, he's not taking your money. In fact, I wanted to particularly point out that you know I'm not a client of his. I have no association with PWO Capital. In fact, PWO Capital has a minimum investment requirement depending on what city you're on. But for example, it can be as high as you need $2 million to invest <laughs> to even become one of their clients. So obviously, not quite there, I'm not Wendell. a client, but <laughs> not quite there. We're, we're definitely not clients. Yeah. But I don't want this to come across like this is some exclusive service only the rich people can have. And he's going to talk about things that don't apply to anyone or try and sell his business. You're going to realize when you listen to our conversation, none of it. Like I'd say 99.9% of it has nothing to do with PW Capital or his personal philosophy or his intuition. All of what he does is data-driven. He reads endless journals, endless articles. He crunches the numbers. And you're going to see through the way he talks. He's quite cerebral. I actually had to ask him, you know, Ben, I know you knew all this stuff cold. I know you, you know, you're an expert in this field. But a lot of people that are listening are going to be new. So we really need to try and dumb know, it down for lack, dumb it down yeah. for a lack of a better term. We need to dumb it down and just make things simple to understand because I might have a certain level of understanding. Dr. Alaki might have a certain level. You yeah. might have a certain level. Someone might not even know what a stock, a bond, an index fund is. And I just want to say that this, these are recommendations only. It's your money. 
do whatever you want with it. It's not going to affect us. It's not going to affect Ben. It's not going to affect Oscar. But we want to offer this advice because I think for people that don't know anything about investing, they're going to learn a ton. Yeah. And it's going to give them a, a huge head start. For people that are older, that already have a lot of investments, if they honestly look at what they're doing and what we're saying, I think it's going to open their eyes to a whole new world. And it's really, really going to benefit them. Then there's going to be a second group of people that maybe already have investments. They've already made you know money and, and they think they know what they're doing. And that, that's great. But I think if you honestly look at what we're going to say in this interview and then look at your own personal situation, you're going to, it's going to open your eyes to things you might not have known about and just take an honest look and just say, hey, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. Maybe I'm great. It's completely up to you. There's always going to be that group of people that you know feel like they're comfortable. They do everything themselves. You know, they don't need advice. And that's that's totally fine. Once again, it's your money. These this is recommendations only. But I think it's crucial, crucial information that we want to get out that everyone needs to know about. And, and yeah, like you're saying, those people that already do it. Yeah, we're not trying to sway you to do something a certain way. And more than that, it's more to, in my opinion, what I've what we people should get out of this is the people that have no idea about this to just pique your interest. We're not saying you're going to learn everything that there is to learn. But it may let you learn, oh, you know what? I want to look into that. Or I've never, I had no idea about that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit more research on my own. So even if it just piques your interest in one of these things, it was worth the time of listening. Yeah. If you even learn anything from one of the topics, it's going to save you tons of money in the future and really, really help you out. So as you can tell, probably because you've already downloaded this episode, this episode and our next episode are going to be a little bit lengthier. I tried to divide uh, the interview into two parts. So part one is more about investing 101 and intro to stocks, bonds, index funds, diversified portfolios, fees, managers, how you can do this. That's kind of part one. Part two is actually extremely beneficial and something that people don't think about is more financial planning and things like your RRSP account, your RESP account, tax considerations, corporation, how to plan for retirement. It's really going to be more about overall financial health and financial well-being and financial planning. So that's going to be part two, which is going to come up in October. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this interview with Ben. I had a great time. We could have talked for hours. It was so enjoyable. And for anyone that's more interested, we're going to put in our show notes, but there are links to his YouTube channel and his podcast. And I highly recommend both. He's really a nice guy and is doing this all for free online just to educate Canadians and try and help them with their financial health. So without further ado, let's get into part one of our interview with Benjamin Felix. All right, in the studio, we have Ben Felix from PWL Capital. Ben, how's it going? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. We definitely want to educate people on the importance of investments and you know financial planning and all these different types of topics that unfortunately, we don't get a great education on during our dental, medical, or surgical training. And we wanted to bring you on to talk about a lot of this stuff because one, you're very highly trained. You work for PWL Capital, which is a wealth management firm. But one of the reasons we really like you is you're really big into education. You have a podcast called the Rational Reminder Podcast that educates people on these topics. You have a YouTube channel called Common Sense Investing that you talk about a variety of topics, give kind of stats, give data, give papers, and all of this you offer for free. So this is kind of a great educational resource for people. And if, the, if you like the flavor of these podcasts and our conversation, those are definitely a couple things that I would recommend checking out. So can you kind of give us kind of an introduction to who you are 
and why you've been so passionate about educating Canadians in these different uh, formats. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. I, I do have a YouTube channel and a podcast that are available for anyone to listen to for free. Why do I do that? Uh, I mean, honestly, it's intellectually stimulating for me. And it would be less intellectually stimulating if I were just doing all of this research and then leaving it on my computer. It's a lot of fun to engage with all sorts of people uh, by putting content out there for the world to see. It's not really a peer review process. That's that's not a, an accurate characterization of it. But when you when you take your knowledge and when you take your views and opinions and put them out there for the for the world to see on the internet, uh, you actually learn a lot. I mean, I've learned more by saying something that I think on the internet and then hearing feedback from people who disagree with me or uh, maybe have some valid points. So that, that's, uh, why do I do that? That's, uh, that's the reason. And yeah, I, I think you mentioned I'm a, I'm a portfolio manager at PWL Capital. My undergraduate degree was actually in mechanical engineering. And then I did an MBA after that and uh, did some, some other education in the finance and portfolio management space. And that's kind of what led me to be a, a portfolio manager at PWL. And you're Canadian. You currently work in Ottawa, correct? Yeah, I am Canadian. I actually grew up on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, and now I live in, in Ottawa. Oh, perfect. So one of the big things we wanted to talk about right off the gate is the importance of different types of investments. A lot of people, when they are investing, you know, they'll classically talk about, oh, stocks or maybe bonds or just holding things in cash. Can you give us kind of an overview of what is the difference between stocks, bonds and cash? I think you can think about stocks. You can definitely think about stocks because this is what they are as a, a fractional piece of ownership of a real business. At the end of the day, when you're buying stocks, you're buying a small portion, if it's, a, if it's one stock, of a, a real company that's out there doing business. Now, a lot of the stocks that we know, like I'll throw one out there, Apple or, or Walmart, those are big businesses that most people are familiar with. There are lots of stocks that trade on public markets that are for, for smaller companies or companies that we may not have heard of. But all of these companies are out there doing, doing business, providing uh, services, creating products. And when you buy a share in the stock of their company, when you buy a, a piece of ownership of their company, you give yourself the opportunity to participate in that business's upside over the long term. Now, Apple's may be a good example because that's a business that's been extremely successful over the last whatever it is, 20, 30 years. And that success has showed up in their share price. Now that can go the other way too, where if you invested in a company, now I don't have an example because these would be companies that we haven't necessarily heard of. A company 30 years ago that did not have the type of outcome that Apple did, that maybe the business didn't do so well. In that case, you can lose money in stocks. So with stocks, you, like I said, you're owning a fractional piece of a company. If the company does well, if a company does specifically better than the market expected it to, you can make really great profits by investing in that company. But it can go the other way too. Now, in the short term, because the, the, the basis of a, of a stock's price is the market's expectation about how well that business is going to do in the future, those expectations can change very quickly. And so based on that, stock prices can change very quickly. And they do. And anyone that follows the stock market in any way at all will hear probably at least when, that, when, it, when it goes down a lot, people tend to hear about that on the, on the news. But that's a normal thing. Stock prices change in value very quickly and by potentially large amounts over the short term. Over the long term, participating in the growth 
of businesses tends to be a good thing. So another way to think about that is that you're taking risk by investing in stocks because you're participating in the upside and downside, depending on what outcome you get, of a business. Over the long term, that, that's usually a good thing. Over the short term, it can be a little bit intimidating. Bonds are very much different. With a stock, you own a piece of the company. With a bond, you can think about it as lending money to a company. So if a company needs, needs to, to finance projects or, or something else like that, uh, they'll sell, sell bonds to the marketplace. When they sell bonds to the marketplace, investors purchase the bonds. The bonds pay the investor. So you, you're the investor. You, you give your money to the company. You, you lend your money to the company. The company pays you a fixed rate of interest for a period of time. And at the end of the term, which is predefined when they sell the bonds, they'll give you your money back. So you're investing in this thing, you're getting interest payments, and at the end of it, you're getting your original principal, your original investment back. If we think about stocks and bonds, if we compare stocks and bonds, think about the Apple example. If you invested in Apple shares, you made lots of money because Apple did really well. If you'd invested in Apple bonds that were paying, I'll throw a number, say 5%. So you invested in an Apple bond that was paying a 5% interest rate. Over the time when Apple's stocks did extremely well, what did Apple's bond pay? 5%. You did not get to participate in the upside. Now, if we think about the other possible outcome where the, where the, the company does poorly and the stock decline in value, the bondholder continues to get their interest. If the company goes bust, if the company disappears off the face of the earth, well, if they dis disappear off the face of the earth, it doesn't work. If, if, they, if they do poorly, if they have a bad financial outcome, the stock value can go to zero. The bondholders may still be able to recoup some of their assets because bondholders tend to have first claim on assets in, in something like a bankruptcy. So if we back up, stocks are risky investments. You're participating in the upside and also the potential downside of companies. You own a piece of the company, good or bad. Over the long term, that tends to be a pretty good thing. With bonds, you're effectively lending money to a company. You're earning a fixed rate of interest. And assuming all goes well, you're getting your money back at the end. Bonds are much safer, but the, you're also not getting to participate in the potentially large upside of stocks. So stocks, risky investments with high expected returns. Bonds are safe investments with lower expected returns. Which kind of makes sense because that's the way it should work. You're taking a little bit more risk, but you might get more reward. Bonds a little bit safer, but you get less of a reward. But then intuitively, that makes sense to me because if I was taking more risk and getting less reward, why would I do that? So that kind of explains the difference between stocks and bonds. But someone might say, why invest in either? Why not just hold my money in cash? Yeah. So with stocks, I briefly alluded to the fact that their prices can change a lot in the, in the short term as expectations about how that company is going to do in the future change. That, that's a, that, that change in price can be described as volatility. Stocks tend to be volatile. Now, bonds, for reasons specific to a company or a country, but also for other reasons like uh, the overall level of interest rates, bond prices can also change. Bonds are much less volatile than stocks, and they have correspondingly lower expected returns. But in both cases, stocks and bonds, you're going to have some volatility in the amount of your investment. So if you invest money, you might lose it in the short term. With cash, you don't really have that volatility. If you put $100,000 into your bank account, it's going to continue to be $100,000. Now, with cash, you might be losing money to inflation. With bonds, you might, you might keep pace with inflation. Historically, that's roughly been the case. Maybe a little bit of a, a, a return above inflation. 
stocks over the long term have definitely returned higher than inflation. Cash, you're probably losing money to inflation over the long term. So with cash, you have no- And inflation inflation simply meaning that you know $100,000 today might not be worth the same as $100,000 10 years from now. When I used to go to the movie theater, it cost $9 for a ticket. Now it costs almost $15 for a ticket. Prices go up over time. Yeah, you can buy less stuff with the same amount of, of money in the future. So cash, you don't have volatility, but your expected return is effectively zero before inflation and more than likely negative after inflation. Now- if we dive a little bit deeper into stocks, a lot of people, you know, they'll talk about buying specific stocks, specific companies. You know, I bought Apple, I bought Tesla, I bought Netflix. But then other investors sometimes mention things such as index funds, such as, you know, I, I just buy the entire index, like the S&P 500 or the entire market. Can you help explain what is the difference between buying in an individual stock or just buying an index fund? Well, I mentioned when I was talking about stocks, I mentioned the idea that an individual company, the, the stock of an individual company, that the value of that thing can go to zero if the company stops functioning. So you can lose all of your money in an individual stock. And that happens. I, I don't have the data on exactly how often it happens, but it happens. And it can happen to any company. And the, the, other, the other risk that's built in there is that even if you don't lose all of your money, you can invest in an, in an individual stock that doesn't go up over the long term. Say you invested in, in Tesla today. Now, I doubt this is going to happen to Tesla because uh, their, their, their share price is pretty good at going up, it seems. But if you invest in the stock of a given company, there's a chance that from the current price level, it just bounces around but stay, stays relatively flat over the long term. So that, that's individual stocks. You, you have what, what's called security-specific risk or company-specific risk. Uh, so that's the risk that that individual stock performs poorly over the long term, despite the market still, the overall market still doing fairly well. An index fund is, well, I'll back up, an, an index is a grouping of stocks that's been designed to represent a country's stock market. Well, if we're talking about a, a country level index fund. So the S&P TSX composite index, as an example, is an index that's designed to represent Canadian, the Canadian stock market. When you're investing in an, in, in, in an index fund, instead of getting one stock, you're getting a cross-section of all of the companies and industries that exist in a given stock market. Now, why would you want to do that? With an individual stock, I mean, I mentioned Tesla as an example. With an individual stock, you have the potential for massive upside and also the potential for massive downside. But the expected outcome with an individual stock is effectively random because it is dominated by the company-specific risk. So it's literally like some people feel like uh, investing in stocks is gambling. I think when we're talking about investing in individual stocks, it absolutely is gambling. It is a random outcome. And actually with individual stocks, I think there's a pretty strong argument that it's a, it's a negative expected outcome over the long term for any, any given stock. And we could get, we're not going to, but we could get into the details of the distribution of stock returns. I'll mention it briefly. We won't dive too deep because it gets pretty... Uh, data heavy, but most individual stocks, by by the number of stocks, most individual stocks underperform the market. And I, I think this is important that that you mention this because a lot of people they'll say, yeah, we know we know stocks can go up and down, but we don't pick the bad stocks. We pick good stocks. You know, Tesla, Netflix, Facebook. People are using these stock these companies all the time. You know, they're going to go up over the long term. So, what's the harm in picking these companies, picking these individual stocks? Yeah. So when you look at the data, 
that the vast majority of the market's return is driven by a tiny number of stocks, a tiny percentage of the stocks that exist in the market. Uh, the, the last comprehensive paper that I saw on this showed that 1.3% of the stocks in the global market were responsible for all of the market's returns in excess of risk-free assets, uh, like a treasury bill, uh, which is like a very safe short-term bond. So all of the market's return in excess of very, very safe bonds was driven by 1.3% of the stocks in the market. So if you're missing those stocks, you're underperforming the uh, market. Now, it would be easy to say, well, we'll just pick those stocks, but you can't. And we'll, we'll talk more about the, the challenges of picking those stocks before they have become the stocks that drive most of the return. Yeah. And just to give, uh, just to give the listeners an example, I think it was last year or the year before, I mean, hindsight is 2020, but I remember everyone's talking about Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, but the highest return was Chipotle or Domino's or something like that. It had beat all of them and not a single person was talking about them. So sometimes just because a company's in the news or you use it every day, that doesn't necessarily translate into that stock being the best one to pick or having the best actual returns. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so now we relate that back to an index fund. Uh, instead of trying to pick those winning stocks that we were just talking about being so hard to pick, an index fund is giving you a very close approximation of all of the stocks that exist. Now, I, actually, there's an important nuance there. I'm using index funds as a blanket term, but you could buy a, you know, a, a marijuana industry index fund, which would be a very concentrated portfolio of marijuana stocks. That's not the type of index fund that I'm saying is a good thing here. That would be, again, a concentrated bet. Slightly more diversified than picking an individual stock, but still a very concentrated bet, which I would liken to gambling. When I'm talking about index funds, I'm talking about total market index funds. And that's where we're relating it back to that total market index, like the S&P TSX composite for Canada, where you're getting a cross-section of all of the companies that exist. So that works just based on the data distribution. Like we know, the, most of the return comes from a small number of the stocks. So if you just own everything, then you know you're, you know you're going to get the market return. There's a, a special association with the market return too. I mentioned the, the individual company risk and the long-term outcome of individual stocks being effectively random with probably a negative expected outcome. The market as a whole has a positive expected return. When you own all of the stocks that exist in a market, you have a positive expected long-term outcome. Another way to think about that is that by owning all of the stocks in the market, you're diversifying away the company's specific risk by owning all of the stocks. You're gonna have the bad ones, you're gonna have the good ones, but it nets out over the long term, assuming that capitalism continues to function, it nets out to a positive return. So to summarize on that, with individual stocks, you're taking what's effectively random risk. It, it really is like gambling. And you probably have a negative expected outcome just based on the way the distribution of stock returns looks. With an index fund, you're getting a cross-section of all of the stocks that exist in a market. And by diversifying in that way, you're giving yourself a positive expected long-term return. Yeah, one thing that's always surprised me is that if, if your friend came up to you and said, oh, I went to the casino last weekend and I won $10,000 with a slot machine or blackjack or poker, you would tell them, wow, that's awesome, great job. And in your mind, you would say, wow, they got really lucky. You're not going to go then take your $10,000 and go to the same casino. But for some reason, when someone comes up and says, oh, I bought Netflix at $100 and now it's $400, all of our minds instantly think, oh, why didn't I do that? That's so obvious. I can do this too. So I think it's really important to just realize that picking individual stocks is the same as gambling. And that's one of the main messages we wanted to say, despite 
you know, many people will have success stories, but no one's bragging about all their failures or all the times that went wrong. So it's definitely a selection bias as to which stories you're going to hear. So some new residents coming out might think, you know, you're talking about stocks, bonds, cash, talking about risk. You're talking about, you know, how things can go up over the long term, but sometimes they don't. Why should I invest at all? Why shouldn't I just maybe find something else to do with my money or just avoid the market altogether? What's the risk of that? So the basis of investing is really to convert your human capital into financial capital over time. Anyone that has the capacity to earn income, especially when they're earlier in their career, has very valuable human capital. But over time, as we get older, that, that starts to deplete. And at some point in time, we either want to stop working or we're unable to continue working, in which case we better hope that we've accumulated sufficient financial capital using a portion of our human capital over time to fund our continued consumption so that you can maintain your lifestyle. Now, why invest in stocks? Why, why take a portion of your human capital and invest it in stocks as opposed to keep it in cash? I mean, my, my original explanation really just addressed why should people save? It's a separate question is why, why should we invest our savings as opposed to just keep them in, in cash? And the answer really comes back to, I think it really comes back to uh, the, the amount that people are able to save. I mean, if you think about it, if we say that cash loses its purchasing power to inflation over the long term, you'd have to save a massive portion of your income while you're working if you're just going to stick it in cash and leave it there. Say, say it's going to earn in, uh, an interest rate equal to inflation. So let's, let's assume that your cash is going to keep pace with inflation over the long term, which I think is maybe a bit of a stretch, but let's assume that you can do that. And let's assume that you're going to work for 30 years and retire for 30 years, which I think is also a stretch. I think people usually retire for longer than 30 years, especially with life expectancies increasing. But if we make those assumptions, assume that your cash is going to keep pace with inflation, you could live off half of your income while you're working, save the other half. And then when you stop working, you could fund the remainder of your life with, uh, with the savings that you built up, assuming it's kept pace with inflation. Now, most people aren't saving half their income. And most people want to uh, spend more time in retirement than they want to spend working. To make that math work, you have to be earning a return on your investments that is higher than inflation. Now, the more risk that you're willing to take, like we mentioned stocks and bonds, the, the more that someone's willing to allocate to stocks, the higher their expected returns are going to be, which gives you a lot of different levers that you can pull. If you're willing to take risk with your investments, that might mean that you can uh, work for fewer years save less of your income, or if you're going to work for the same amount of time and save the same amount of income, regardless of the amount of risk you're taking in your portfolio, uh, with a higher expected return, you, you have more financial capital, which gives you more flexibility to do different things when, once you've stopped working, including things like philanthropic efforts, traveling more, whatever it may be that, that uh, people want to do. So having more financial capital is, is usually a good thing, but to get there, you have to take some risk. So let's say now we've decided that investing is a good idea and we, and we want to get into the market. Can you talk a little bit about different philosophies in investing? So a lot of people talk about, you know, active philosophy versus passive philosophy. So what is an active strategy and what is a passive strategy? The, the, the naming conventions for active and passive investing are a bit tricky, but if we take the, the sort of broad definitions where People generally equate passive investing with buying index funds, which is what we've been talking about. If we assume that's passive investing, 
active investing tends to be trying to select the right stocks at the right time. So security selection, stock selection, and market timing. I, I would generally characterize uh, any, any strategy that employs those two things, security selection and market timing, as an active strategy. So for example, I'm, I'm, I'm picking a stock I want to buy because I think it's going to go up, or I'm waiting to buy a stock because I think it's going to go down, or the market's going to crash and I want to buy at the bottom and then kind of go up. Though Those would be two examples of what you would consider active strategies. Yeah. I mean, you, you could be picking the stocks that you want to buy as opposed to buying the cross-section of all the stocks through the index fund. I would, I would call stock picking an active strategy. But you could also employ an active strategy using index funds because if you just if you did what you just said using index funds, I would also call that active. If you said I can't pick stocks, so I'm just going to use index funds, but I'm going to try and buy at the right time and sell at the right time, both of those would be active strategies. In a lot of cases, an active strategy is a combination of both of those things together. So a lot of our listeners that are currently investing, I think you would divide them up into you know different categories of experience. Many people might not know what's better. Is it better to be active and maybe, you know, pick stocks and try and be smart or work with someone or better to be passive, just kind of buy and hold over the long term? One thing you talk about a lot on your podcast and online is something called the Spiva report card. So what is the Spiva report card and what kind of information does it give us? So the Spiva report card is, is a, it's a, a, a sort of industry publication that comes from Standard & Poor's. Uh, which is a, a, a massive financial research company. But one of the things that they do is publish indexes. So we mentioned earlier the S&P TSX Composite Index as an index that represents the Canadian stock market. Well, the S&P in there is Standard & Poor's. Standard & Poor's published the, publishes this uh, semi-annual scorecard where they take all of the actively managed mutual funds that exist, and they do this for countries all around the world, they take all of the actively managed mutual funds that exist in a given country, and they compare those mutual funds to their benchmark index. And the point of the scorecard is to see what percentage of actively managed mutual funds manage to outperform their benchmark index over a given period of time. Now, this is a this this topic, this question has been researched more academically in peer-reviewed papers and published in all, all kinds of the, the top journals in financial economics, uh, I, I think people gravitate to the SPIVA report because it's very easy to understand and the data come out consistently twice, twice a year. But the message that comes out of it is in line with the academic research, so there's no, no surprises there, but it's also staggering just in the, in the percentage of actively managed mutual funds that underperform their benchmark index. I mean, another question is why, why, is this, why is this important? It's important because anytime that you're investing in something other than an index fund, you're usually going to be, be paying a higher fee and you're usually going to be taking more risk just by nature of selecting securities within the market. I mean, we talked about that distribution of stock returns. Most of the returns come from a small number of stocks. So as soon as you take the stocks in the market and say, well, I'm going to pick this subset you're taking now not just the market risk, which we talked about earlier as being a risk with a positive expected return. As soon as you select a subset for your active strategy or try and time trades, either one of those approaches to being active, as soon as you do that, you're introducing this risk that you're going to underperform the index. Now that's got a name, it's called active risk. So as soon as you start doing something active, you're now taking the market risk, just like anybody else investing in an index fund, but you're also taking active risk. 
Now that active risk better be taking better be paying off because you're taking more risk and you probably have higher costs. The lower cost, less risky alternative is always going to be index funds. It would make sense to take active risk if you expected to earn returns higher than the index. I mean, it should be somewhat obvious. If you can't, if you if you'd expect lower returns, or even if you'd expect the same returns from active investing, but more risk than the index fund, then you'd always gravitate back to the index fund. So anyway, the Spiva report shows, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the year-end 2019 Spiva scorecard for Canada specifically. And if you look out 10 years, they report on one, three, five, and 10-year data. For the 10 years end, ending December 2019, I mean, if we pick a fund category, Canadian equity funds. So that's Canadian actively managed mutual funds that exist to try and outperform the S&P TSX composite index. 86.15% of them have underperformed the index over that 10-year period. And this, this is something we really want everyone to understand that we're talking here about, you know, let's say Ben bought, you know, the S&P index for all the stocks in Canada and I'm a mutual fund manager at your bank and I'm managing your money, there is a 86% chance that I have underperformed the index fund compared to if you had just gone with Ben's strategy. So, you know, intuition might tell you, oh, probably a 50-50 chance you might beat the market or I have an expert on my side, so I'm definitely beating the market. The market's so simple, people are just buying one thing. I'm using experts, I'm using knowledge, I'm looking at companies individually, but the research shows that over the long term, 86% in this case, and on average, it's usually about 15% of active managers that can beat the market. So you're looking at usually around 85% of people are better off just going with the index fund, plain, vanilla, simple strategy. So obviously the first question that's gonna come here is why don't I just look at this report card and pick one of the 15% of the active managers or active mutual funds that are beating the market. Yeah. So the, the question's a really interesting one. And it's also something that's been studied extensively in the academic literature. And actually, Spiva just this year released for the first time their persistence scorecard for Canada. Uh, they've been doing that for the US for, for years, but we can speak to that Spiva persistence data in a second. The reason that the question is really important comes back to the idea of luck versus skill in outcomes. If we take the active managers that have done well over a given period of time, if they did well because they were skilled, we would expect their favorable performance to continue. If they did well because they were lucky, I mean, if you just think about it, if you take a bunch of active managers, let them go at it for a decade, at the end of the decade, there's going to be a distribution of outcomes. Some of the active managers will have beaten the market. They have to have. Some, many won't have. Some, some won't have. But within that distribution of outcomes, we don't know if the, if the favorable outcomes were due to luck or skill. So the research on persistence tries to get at that, at that idea. Are active managers that do well over a given period of time lucky or are they skilled? Now, obviously, if they're just lucky, there's, there's no point in trying to, uh, in trying to find good managers, uh, good being good based on their past performance, because there's a good chance they were just lucky. So anyway, the more academic research on this is very interesting, but I'll, I'll again just speak to the SPIVA data because I, th I think it's, it's very easy to, uh, to grasp. 
So for Canada, if we look at the, the top quartile funds, so the best 25% of Canadian mutual funds at the start of December 2015, <laughs> the, the data are staggering. By, by December 2019, across all fund categories, 0% of those funds had remained top quartile. So if, if, if we were in 2015 right now and we had asked this question and I looked at the report card and I said, oh, here, here's the top 25% of funds and they, you know, maybe let's say 15% might have of those 25% might have beat the index. And I said, oh, this one did the best. Let me pick this fund. If we were to look from 2015 to now, 0% are still persistently in that top quartile. That's right. That's right. 0% are still top quartile. And this speaks to what you were saying. If, if, if you had a skilled, talented manager, then you know they, they might not be number one every year, but they should be in the top 25% consistently. And if you have a distribution where you know all these people are beating the index and then none of them are, that seems to be a little bit more in the category of luck, which is they did really well, but they can't replicate that performance over time. That's right. So if we agree then that you know you can't just look to the past and see who's doing well, the issue that a lot of our listeners will have, and a lot, especially residents coming out, you'll start off with a lot of debt, you'll start off with a resident salary, and then you start working. You're making more money. Maybe you're looking at a mortgage, you're starting to talk to the bank about a loan for a private practice. All of a sudden you're overwhelmed with all these different people and your relationship with the bank is gonna exponentially increase. And at some point along the way, the bank is going to say, listen, Wendell, you're an oral surgeon, you're making good money. We want to introduce you to a private service only available to certain people, and we're going to manage your money for you. We're going to let it grow. We're going to be conservative, but make sure uh, you know we do well for you. Index funds are, are simple. This is more complex. We're putting more time, energy. We have a proven track record of outperformance. You know, it all, it all sounds great. But one thing that's kind of, you know, in the fine print or in the bottom line that a lot of people that know about this mention are fees and MERs. Because what you have to think about is anytime you're buying something or giving someone your money, there has to be an incentive for them. There has to be either a fee, an income for them. They're not doing this for free. So can you explain what are the fees involved with this? What are MERs and how do these fees compare to, for example, an index fund that we mentioned before? Let's just think about the, that, that idea of the distribution of outcomes again. If we took all uh, the Canadian index, if we took the Canadian, the, the Canadian index over a period of time, all of the active managers that are investing in Canadian stocks in aggregate, all of them together are investing in the Canadian index. If you can buy that index for, say, 0.1%, that, that's 0.1% of the invested value is what you're paying to own that index fund. If you can buy the index fund for that cost, whereas an active manager is, say, is charging on average, say, say it's 2% uh, of the invested assets, just by nature of the fee, well over 50% of the active managers are going down to perform the index after fees. Because they have to beat, they don't just have to beat the index, they have to beat it by the fee differential and then more. So you're saying that in, if the index costs 0.1% and they're charging 2%, they have to beat it by 1.9% just to be equal because they're charging you a fee. And then they have to produce even more than that. That's right. 
And that, that concept uh, was coined as the, the arithmetic of active management by uh, someone who won the Nobel Prize in Economic uh, Sciences named Bill, Bill Sharp. So the, the arithmetic of, of active management. But, but before fees, active funds and passive funds on average should have the same returns. After fees, active funds on average must underperform passive or index funds. Because if so someone loses money, do they still have to pay? I mean, I know the answer, but they have to pay that, that fee. So if the market goes down 20%, they're going down 22%. If the market goes up 20%, they're going up 18%. So that fee is a constant drag on their portfolio, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that's one of the tricky things when you're, when you're seeking financial advice, like in the scenario that you, that you mentioned where you're sitting down at the bank and they're showing you their, their funds and their past performance. And they're saying you, you should be paying a higher fee than you would otherwise pay to buy index funds. Uh, you, you should be paying a higher fee because look at this strong past performance. That's a very tricky proposition. It's a very pr- tricky proposition because after fees, you're so much more likely to underperform the index, especially after higher fees than the index. If someone proposed an active strategy that costs the same as the index, you still have a, a worse expected outcome, but not nearly as bad as if you're paying significantly higher fees, which in most cases you will be. And I think in that, in that sitting down with a bank scenario, there's another really important thing to mention. And this actually comes from the SPIVA scorecard as well, which is the concept of survivorship bias. Now, you mentioned, Wendell, the selection bias of your friends talking about their winning stock picks. Something similar happens in the, in the fund data. In the, in the active mutual fund data. So if you go and sit down at one of the big banks, they're going to show you a list of their funds and all or most of those funds will have beaten the index over say 10 years. Now, that can be perplexing. I think people will hear something like what we're talking about now, at least up until this point, and wonder why that doesn't match up with how well the funds that they've been showing at the bank have, have actually done. Like the bank is saying, look, these are real results. Look how much better. Look how, look how all of our funds have beaten the index. We've got the best active managers, the smartest people, and so on and so forth. But the issue of survivorship bias is massive in mutual funds. The data show, and again, the data from the Spiever scorecard, show that the funds with the worst performance tend to close. And the survivorship rate over 10 years for mutual funds in Canada, it depends a little bit on the fund category that we're talking about. But across all fund categories, it's around 50%. And that's staggering. Half of funds close over 10 years. So when so that fund closes the, and your money was in the fund, what does the bank do? It merges with a different fund. You, you end up with units of a, of a fund that has not done as poorly. And do they tell that, you, that, oh, we had your money in this fund and then it did poorly. So we closed the fund and moved it to this fund? I'm sure they'd frame it differently. <laughs> Yeah, but but practically that's what would happen. You would end up with with units of a of a different uh, fund. But the issue is when you're sitting down making a decision, and the information that you're being prevent, pre- presented with is look how well these actively managed mutual funds have done. What you're not seeing in that case is the roughly fifty percent of funds over the last ten year period that closed because they did poorly. So that that in the decision making process for an investor that maybe doesn't understand what the data look like on active actively managed mutual funds, that decision making process can be extremely tricky because it and really analogy, does look like yeah. And the analogy I would give, you know, some of our oral surgeons that are listening is when you go to a conference and someone's presenting a lot of their implant cases or surgery cases, they're showing you their best cases. They're showing you all the ones that went perfectly. No one's showing you, hey, I put in this implant. And it dehissed and got infected and I had to remove it. 
and it was a disaster. They're showing you the perfect results, perfect patients, perfect before and after. So in the same way, you should think the bank is also trying to present something to you. And they're also maybe showing you the best of what's happened and maybe not the whole picture. Now, in some cases, I, I think it's easy to bash fees. Some, in some cases, paying fees is not a bad thing. I think it just depends what you're paying the fees for. Now, my own biases may be coming through here, although I hope they're not. When you're paying for advice, separate from paying for active management, if you're paying for advice on whether you should be saving inside of your corporation or in your RSP, or paying for advice on whether you should be taking dividend income or salary income, uh, or if you should purchase that uh, permanent insurance policy inside of your corporation, all of those things are really important. And so it's possible, and I mean, again, here, here's my bias, it's possible to pay for advice from, from someone who is going to put your money into low-cost index funds. It's possible to pay for advice where part of that advice is, hey, for the investing portion of this overall picture, we're going to use low-cost index funds. Where that gets tricky is, if we use the bank example again, you may end up paying for advice that covers all of those areas that I just mentioned. I mean, I only mentioned a couple, but covers all of the different financial planning and wealth management areas. But when it gets to the investing piece, it's like, we're going to put it in these high-cost mutual funds. I think that's problematic. I think paying high fees for investments is problematic. But I think it's also easy to conflate paying high fees for investments with paying any amount at all for financial advice. I think it's a very important distinction to, to make. All right. So we're talking about the importance of fees, but sometimes I think it's good to give kind of a concrete example of the impact this can have in real terms. So let's talk about the Canadian stock market. So what we're going to compare here is just buying your run-of-the-mill passive index fund covers the entire market. So you own every stock in Canada. And the fee they charge, for example, at Vanguard, which is one of these uh, fund providers, is 0.06%. That is the fee they charge you for you to buy their product and invest in every single stock. Now, to compare that, we're going to look at a specific active mutual fund. We won't mention it in particular, but it's from one of the banks. And their fee is 1.53%. So not even on the higher end. We've seen some mutual funds that have 2%. 2.5%. I mean, those have been coming down over time due to the fact that more and more people are becoming aware of this. But this one's only 1.53%. So expensive, but modest compared to some other ones. Now, if we had invested in this Canadian stock market for 30 years, which is, you know, a very realistic time frame for a lot of new grads or people in the midst of their career, even you have to think, you know, when you retire, you might have 30 years of retirement that you're investing for. What would have happened to that $100,000 that we started off with? And what the returns show is after 30 years, that $100,000 would have become $747,000. But most importantly, the cost you would have paid Vanguard over 30 years was $5,800 approximately. So you might be thinking, wow, that's a lot of money. I, I, I paid Vanguard a lot of money, but you know, your money went from 100000 to 750000 and you paid 5800 Now, let's go to our actively managed mutual fund. And remember, we're assuming that the actively managed mutual fund had the same returns. Remember, 85% of actively managed funds have underperformed 
after fees. But let's just say right now, we're not looking at fees. It's the same return. What happens after 30 years? So your $100,000 would have increased to $483,000 and you would have paid the bank or the fund company $110,000 over those 30 years. So there are two incredibly important concepts for you to realize from this. First is look at the fee difference. For 1.53%, which didn't sound that high, you ended up paying them $110,000. For the simple index fund, you ended up paying $5,800. So you can already see the fee difference is catastrophic. But some of our astute listeners might be thinking, wait, but $750,000 minus the fee of $110,000 does not equal $483,000. So why is my value at the end so much less? And the reason is you have to think, we're not fast forwarding through time 30 years. We're looking at this every single year you're paying a fee. So the easiest way to think about this is, you know, you invest $100,000 after year one. After year two, you've paid a 0.06% fee or a 1.53% fee. But that difference, that difference in fee for the person in the index fund, they still have that money. They're still investing that money. So over time, you're losing out on all this money that would have been invested is not in the stock market because you paid it already for a fee. Ben, is this your kind of experience with fees and, and why they matter? And is this kind of a illustration you give some of your clients sometimes? Yeah, I think there's an even easier way to think about it. When we're talking about fees, the numbers seem small. Even a 2% fee might seem relatively small. But when we compare that to the expected returns on an investment in stocks, I mean, for, for financial planning purposes right now, PWL is using uh, some, a, a little bit more than 6%, call it 6.5% as the expected return for an investment in stocks. 2% on its own, just 2% in absolute terms, that's a small number. But 2% out of a total expected return of 6.5%, that's a massive portion of your expected returns that are going to fees. Now, we've talked about what happens when you try and do active management. You tend to make yourself worse off. Now, that's true even before fees, which is interesting. And that relates back to at the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about how hard it is to pick the winning stocks. So even before fees, active managers actually tend to do pretty poorly just based on the distribution of stock returns. But then we factor in fees and you're just putting yourself in such a, it's such a detriment to the long-term outcome. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the example that you gave makes a lot of sense. I've seen other examples with slightly higher fees where it, it ends up eating up sort of half of the uh, wealth you would have otherwise accumulated uh, by, by having lower fees. So I, I think it's, it's definitely safe to say that fees are, fees are important. And there have been other studies too that looked at, uh, looked at the relationship between fund fees and future performance. And fees are actually one of the best predictors of future performance. So even if you decided, well, I, I like the idea of active management, I really like this bank or whatever. So I'm going to invest in their, in their actively managed funds. Even if you made that decision, one of the best predictors of active fund performance is fees. Lower cost active funds will tend to beat higher cost active funds over the long term. Index funds are just a more extreme and I would argue safer example because you're not only getting lower fees, but you're also getting the diversification that index funds offer, which active funds by their nature take away. You, you lose diversification by going with an actively managed strategy. 
So let's talk about this concept of diversification. So we've already kind of illustrated that picking one stock is bad. Picking an index of a group of stocks, for example, you mentioned, you know, the cannabis index is better than picking one of them, but also not great because you're only in one sector and you're, you're kind of narrowing your field. So then someone might say, OK, I'll buy all of Canada, every single stock in Canada, look at the index and buy that. But then there's one level above that. You know, there's other countries, there's other stock markets in the world. There's the U.S., there's emerging markets, all these other different index funds. So is it important to diversify outside of Canada and the U.S.? Do we, is there any point in buying, you know, index funds that represent other areas of the world? Yeah, I, I think it's extremely important. I think when we're thinking about asset allocation, when we're thinking about, I mean, to, to put it in the, in the language that you were just speaking in, which indexes should we own? I think that the starting point has to be all of, all of the stocks in the world. Start with the global market portfolio. That would be the smartest starting point in, in portfolio construction. Let's aim to own all of the stocks that exist. So obviously buying a Canadian index fund is not accomplishing that. I mean, Canada makes up about 3% of the global market. With the US, maybe we're a little better off because that's, uh, that's about 57% of the global market. So if you bought a Canadian and a US index fund, hey, not bad. That's, that's at least uh, more than half of, of the global market capitalization, the, the global value of all of the stocks that exist. But there's still 40% that you're not touching by, by allocating that way. Now, why does that matter? We've talked about stock-specific risk, where if you buy one individual stock, you're effectively getting a random outcome. When you buy a whole entire stock market, you're taking a lot of that individual uh, company risk away, but you're still taking country-specific risk. Country-specific risk is the risk that the stock market of a given country does poorly over the long term, or at least doesn't do as well as other markets. So just like diversifying away individual company risk, you can diversify away individual country risk by owning multiple countries. Now, there's a famous saying that diversification is the only free lunch in investing. And I think that's true. In the case of individual stocks, by diversifying, you're making your expected return more consistent. You're taking away that random component of company-specific risk. And it's the same thing at the country level. By diversifying globally, you're taking away the country-specific risk that any one of the countries that you invest in has a bad stock market outcome over the long term. I mean, one of the scariest examples of this is probably Japan, where Japan in the 1990s had a, a pretty vicious stock market crash. They had a real estate bubble too. It was not a good time to be investing in, in Japan. But the crazy thing about the Japan example is their, their, their returns since then for the Japanese stock market have been effectively flat. So if you invest in Japan in 1990, uh, you've made basically a 0% return since then. So we're talking about a 30-year period with, with no returns. Now, I'm obviously, I hope that doesn't happen to Canada or the United States, but the point is that it could. But when you own all of the countries, that risk goes away. So I think diversification, diversification across countries should definitely be one of the, one of the starting points. Now, it may sound intimidating, like, oh, now I've got to buy more than just one index. But I think in, in Canada, we've been very lucky in the last couple of years with a lot of innovative index fund products. Like you mentioned, the company Vanguard, that's one of the companies that's creating index funds that are available in Canada. iShares from BlackRock is also creating these index fund products. So as BMO, I mean, there's a ton of choice out there now. But we have these things in Canada called asset allocation ETFs which is, it's a, it's a pre-made fund that you can purchase. 
and it has already allocated across global indexes. So it's not so scary. You're, just, you're, you're still just buying one thing. You have to choose to invest your money in one thing. But within that thing, you're getting exposure to the global stock market. Now, there, there are nuances in asset allocation. For example, the, the theoretical global market portfolio consists of all of the stocks. And I mean, technically, all of the other assets, but we, we can't easily invest in those through an index fund. But there are limitations like the legal structure in some countries. You might, want, might not want to invest in a country that doesn't have strong property rights, for example. Uh, and then there are other things like taxes, where investing in Canadian stocks is actually more tax efficient for a Canadian investor than investing in uh, the stocks of uh, other countries around the world. So if we start with that theoretical global market portfolio, you might make some tweaks, like maybe having a little bit more than 3% of the portfolio in Canada because of the tax efficiency. Now, those asset allocation ETFs that I mentioned, all of those decisions have already been made for you. And I think, generally speaking, the way that those products have been structured is, is pretty good. You're getting global market exposure, and you can choose your mix between stocks and bonds within those products as well. So asset allocation is an important decision. It should be global. But again, we're lucky in Canada where there are some really good low-cost products that have already made those asset allocation decisions for you. Okay, great. So we've talked now about diversification and why it's so important. We've talked about you know, the, the pros of purchasing index funds, uh, maybe global index funds that capture all different countries and all different markets and how simple it can become with one of these asset allocation ETFs. One thing we haven't touched upon is how do we do this? So, you know, traditionally it used to be very difficult. A lot of these index funds didn't exist. They were very difficult to purchase, or maybe there were some walls up that didn't allow individuals to purchase them on their own. But recently, things have become a lot more simple. Now, one of the negative aspects of things becoming more simple is maybe before I couldn't buy and trade index funds on my own, and it was very costly. And now that door has opened up for me. But the negative side of that is I can now buy and sell individual stocks or pretty much anything I want very easily. So on one hand, simplicity has opened you know, some doors that are great, but on the other hand, it has made things even more complex and maybe has caused some people to just be afraid of getting involved in the first place. So this has caused a lot of different ways to invest to emerge. And I want to touch on some of them now and get your opinion. So kind of four of the broad categories that people talk about are DIY, so do it yourself, active management. So, you know, having an active manager that we've talked about that manages your money for you and charges a fee and may invest in actively managed mutual funds. The most classic example of this we've touched on is someone at the bank that's in their private wealth management uh, division and they're managing your money for you and they're investing in these things on your behalf. Next model we have is maybe a financial advisor. This is someone that can give you advice but may not charge you for what you're investing in or necessarily do the investing for you. Some of them will, some of them won't. But they can also uh, be a resource that charges a set fee and just gives you advice for them to you for you to execute on your own. And finally, we have a fourth option that's become a lot more popular in recent days, which is a robo advisor. So listeners will be familiar with things like Wealth Simple. There's been a lot of ads for them, for example. 
And what these robo-advisors do is it's kind of like an online platform. You take your money, you answer some questions, they give you options, you click some buttons, and they invest your money for you, they rebalance for you. And the nice thing is they charge a much lower fee. So what do you think about these different categories and what are some good ways to look at, you know, which category is right for me? So I think you're absolutely right that the amount of choice that Canadian investors have today is so much better than it was even 10, 10 years ago, which is around when I started in the financial services industry. So the, the robo-advisors, the asset allocation ETFs that I mentioned, even things like, like uh, the ability to, to purchase index funds for f- free through some discount brokerages like, uh, like Questrade and now Wealthsimple Trade, actually. So there is a ton of choice. And I also agree that that's a double-edged sword. That can be really good. It can also be, well, not, not so good, depending on, on uh, who, who it is managing their own assets. I, I think to think about the, the different models out there, one of the first, thing that, first things that, that's important to define is, is what is a financial advisor? Because that's a title that gets thrown around fairly loosely by a lot of different people. Now, that's a title that has been under a lot of scrutiny by regulators recently. As of right now, I believe in Ontario, it is still an unregulated title, although it is up for sort of review by the regulators where they're, they're considering how it could be regulated. But what does that mean? It means that someone calling themselves a financial advisor doesn't necessarily have any credentials or, or anything like that to back up the advice they're giving. And it also means that they may, have, they may, may not have you, the end client's best interest in mind when they're giving advice. So the classic example of that, which is still a problem, I still see it today. The classic example is someone who is selling mutual funds on a commission basis, who is called a financial advisor. That, that is the title um, that they would often be, be using. But there's a massive conflict of interest. So a commission-based mutual fund, that's the classic example of the sort of 2% fee mutual funds that we've been actively managed mutual funds that we've been talking about. A commission-based advisor only gets paid when they sell an actively managed mutual fund. Now, one of the other tricky pieces of that is that index funds, because the fees are so low, don't pay commissions. So anytime that you're getting advice from someone who's paid commissions for selling actively managed mutual funds and cannot get paid to sell index funds, it's obviously going to be tricky to get the type of advice that we've been talking about as being sensible. It would be like going to the shoe store and you're the salesman and you know that if you sell me a Nike shoe, you get 10% of how much I pay. But if you sell me an Adidas shoe, you get $0. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the classic example is it's like going to a butcher and asking them what you should have for dinner. They're going to have a lot of different cuts of meat, but they're going to tell you that you <laughs> but should you're have gonna meat. you're going to get meat. Yeah, you're going to get meat. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's similar. And, and that's, that's really challenging. Now, I, I started my career in that type of role where I was selling actively managed mutual funds. It took me about two months to realize that I had to get out of there. And that's what led me to, to where I am today with PWL. It's a challenging position to be in from the so-called financial advisor's perspective. And it's not just challenging because the only way you can make income is by selling these actively managed mutual funds. It's also challenging because you're in an environment where 
there are misinformation campaigns is what I would characterize them as coming from the fund distributors themselves or, or the fund, uh, the, the people who create the actively managed mutual funds. They're actively trying to convince the financial advisors that active management is good and that index funds are not good. I mean, I've, I've seen you know, PowerPoint presentations about why index funds are not good investments. And this is one of the tricky things about the whole situation with financial advice in, in Canada specifically, because commission-based mutual funds are still a massive portion of Canadian investor assets. Uh, massive, like they're, they're dominant. It's a very tricky situation for the, for the end investor, because you may be getting advice from someone that you trust and someone that really does have your best interests in mind, but what they believe is good is selling actively managed mutual funds. And it's hard to convince them otherwise when that's how they're getting paid, obviously. So I, I think that, that piece of how should you be accessing investments, one of the most important pieces to know is if you're getting advice from someone, how are they getting paid? And if they're getting paid by the product that they're selling you, that's obviously problematic. Now, I, I like to think that this issue is going away or getting better but I don't think that it actually is. I mean, I still see a lot of young doctors who, by the time that they're coming to talk to me, they've already been sold expensive actively managed mutual funds, and they've already been sold expensive insurance products. And it took them maybe two or three years into their career to realize some of the stuff that we've been talking about, how important fees are and how active management doesn't make sense. But the people selling these products will fight tooth and nail to disagree. And that puts the end investor who maybe doesn't have all of the knowledge or information, it puts them at a, in a very difficult position. I think that compensation piece is, is crucial. Now, to back up and answer the question that you actually asked, in broad terms, how to access financial markets, you can use a discount brokerage and you can buy your own index funds or stocks, but I wouldn't recommend doing that, individual stocks. So you can use a discount brokerage and buy your own index funds. The advantages of doing that are that it's extremely low cost. Extremely low cost. Like if the asset allocation funds that we mentioned, you're going to pay a fee of, I think, 0.22% for the iShares version. And that's going to give you a diversified portfolio. It's going to give you sort of built-in asset allocation advice just by the nature of the, how the product has been constructed. All of those things are great. For someone who's has no interest in learning about any of this, that can still be tricky. I mean, even the process of opening up a brokerage account and purchasing an index fund, that's not necessarily easy. I wouldn't call it hard, but it's not something that you're necessarily going to go and sit down at your computer and, and do without doing- Yeah, it's not, it's not a couple clicks online. I have a, a co-resident of mine that is actually going through that process right now, and there's a lot of obstacles. Sometimes you have to go to the bank, you have to fill out forms, and keep in mind, Every single person you're going to meet at the bank is going to try and convince you that what you're doing is a bad idea. So definitely, unfortunately, very difficult to do, but is a great option. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. You can continue. No, no, no. That's, that's really good insight. So that, that, that I would call just straight do-it-yourself investing. You're doing everything yourself. You're, you're using a discount brokerage as a medium to access the financial markets, and that's it. And that's the cheapest thing that you can possibly do uh, as an investor. The next level, I think would be the robo-advisor. So in terms of the robo-advisors in Canada, Wellsimple is the largest, and I think they're the largest because they've spent the most on marketing and they're backed by a huge financial company, but that's, that's fine. So, so you're saying they're the biggest because they've paid the most money to say they're the biggest. Uh, that, uh, that, that is... <laughs> that is a, Seems like a solid strategy to me. 
Uh, when I have a practice, I'll just I'll just keep saying I'm the best practice. Yeah. And then I'll just keep spending money on marketing, say I'm the best practice, and therefore I will be the best practice. I don't know how good of a long-term business strategy it is for them. But anyway, it's it, it's working <laughs> so far to gather some uh, some assets from Canadian investors. Uh, now, what is what is Wellsimple doing? And there are other robo-advisors too. Wellsimple is just the one that I remember because, like I said, they spend the most on marketing. It's hard to avoid them. I mean, anyone listening has probably seen an ad for them somewhere. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so what what are they doing? They're building portfolios, mostly of low-cost index funds. I, I think their their portfolios are are comparable to sort of the asset allocation ETFs that we've been talking about for the most part. The nuances I don't think really matter for this for this conversation. So they're 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 building portfolios like that. But what they're really doing is making the whole process very easy. Like you mentioned how it wasn't so easy for your co-resident to go and open their own self-directed brokerage account. Wellsimple and the other robo-advisors are making it very easy. They are making it just a few clicks away, which I think in a lot of ways is a good thing. They're also helping you choose a portfolio. I mean, your, your co-resident example, opening the account, that, that, that in itself is hard. Once the account is open, they've still got to decide which index fund they're going to buy. I mean, we talked about how asset allocation ETFs have made this a lot easier and they've taken a lot of the decision-making away, but you still have to pick the mix between stocks and bonds. You still have to pick which index fund provider you're going to use. There's three or four or five different providers making very similar products. So there's a lot of decisions and, and there can be decision fatigue and significant mental overhead from the whole process. And just one stat to tell everyone is that there are now existing in the world more index funds than there are stocks. So it used to be you look for an index fund, you find the index fund and you just buy it. Now people are starting to realize this is a great opportunity to make their own index funds. And believe it or not, you can buy more different types of index funds than you could buy more different types of stocks. So absolutely, I agree. Choosing Once you get in, even choosing what to buy can be a, a big source of paralysis for a lot of people. Yeah, we get into the paradox of, of uh, choice. So the, the, the robo-advisors are making you fill out a questionnaire. And, and then based on the questionnaire, they're recommending a portfolio. I think there are better ways to choose an asset allocation. But I guess if, you, if the alternative is not choosing an asset allocation, then going through their questionnaire is, is pretty good. So they're making it super easy. Uh, they're making it super easy to see your investments once you've, once you've gotten everything going. They're making it easy to choose the mix between stocks and bonds that, that you think might make sense for you. And for all of this, they're charging a fee. So Wellsimple is charging 0.5%, I think. Um, and then when you get above a certain threshold, which is, I believe, 100,000, their fee drops to 0.4%. I, I'm in no way associated with Wellsimple, just to be clear. I just know how they work. Um, which, which, to be fair, is it, for a new investor, that's a very low fee. Uh, it's very convenient. It helps them kind of get started. So although you know, there might be some pros and cons to each of what we're saying is if you have no idea what you're doing, it's still much better than just handing your money over to someone else and having them do everything for you, you know, in an actively managed style. You raise a really, really important point with the robo-advisors. When you're starting out, if you have no dollars to invest and all you want to do is get your accounts open and get started, the fees that you're paying in dollar terms 0.5% 0.5% of $100. I mean, it's it's nothing. Of $1,000, it's nothing. $10,000 is still really like it's not a lot of money. When you start getting into bigger numbers, when you start getting into having half a million, uh, even 100000 the dollar amount of fees that you're paying to the robo-advisor start to increase. Now, 
they've answered that to an extent by adding additional services for the fee that you're paying, which I think is important to, to recognize. It, it is true that in dollar terms, you're paying more to something like a robo-advisor as the assets increase, but they're also providing additional services, obviously, because they, they get the economics of this too. People aren't going to pay more and more money for the same service. So anyway, I, I, I think that the robo-advisors are a great entry point for a lot of people. I think it's important to keep an eye on the amount that you're paying in fees, which will increase as your invested assets increase, uh, the, the, the amount that you're paying in fees and the value that you're getting for those fees. So that's, the, that's a, an, an important thing to keep in mind with the robo-advisor. But I, I do think that they're a great option. Now, what you're still not necessarily getting with a robo-advisor, and that's uh, not always going to be true. Uh, for example, with Wealthsimple, I think once you get above half a million, you do start getting access to some more uh, financial planning-oriented advice. And I know some of the other robo-advisors are doing that for lower amounts of investments. But that, that advice piece can be really important. Like We're focused very much so far in this conversation on investing. But I kind of alluded to earlier, there are a lot of other decisions, maybe especially when you're in a position where you're, you're likely to have a corporation uh, where you're earning most of your income, there are a lot of other decisions that you have to make. And getting advice on those things can be extremely important, arguably even more important than things like which index fund to buy or what your mix between stocks and bonds should be. So with a DIY approach, you obviously don't get that. With the robo-advisor approach, you, you might get that. What will the quality of that advice be is, is tougher to say. One way that you can access advice uh, while being, say, a DIY investor, is that you can pay directly for it. So talk about getting rid of conflicts of interest. Uh, you can go and invest your own money in index funds through a discount brokerage, and you can go and find a fee-only financial planner that you can pay explicitly for advice. Now, it's not always going to be cheap. In fact, it's not cheap, especially if you're uh, looking for advice on things like having a corporation in your overall Structure. I know some fee-only planners are charging five, six, seven thousand dollars for a financial plan that includes more complex structures like that. In some cases, even potentially more. Uh, but the advice I think is valuable and can end up being really important over the long term. So that's DIY. You've got robo advisors. You've got combining either a, ro a robo advisor or DIY with a fee-only planner to get that, that sort of non-investment advice. And we also covered commission-based advisors, which I would say avoid at, uh, at all costs. And then the final model that I would mention is what PWL is. And again, my own bias is maybe showing here, but firms like PWL are fee-based, which means we don't sell products. We're not earning any commissions. So we have no incentive to in, uh, recommend one product over another. We use low-cost index funds to build portfolios, but then we also provide advice on all of the wealth management aspects, all of the, the non-portfolio pieces that come together in the financial planning process. Now, firms like ours, and we're not the only one that exists like this, there are lots of other, well, a few others in, in Canada, we have higher investment minimums, which is important. So a young resident is not necessarily going to be able to access a service like PWL. At an entry-level point, I think the DIY or the robo-advisor 
paired with a fee-only financial planner is, is going to be the only option that a lot of people have. And then as their investable assets start to get higher in the sort of million or $2 million range, then I think, I, my, my own biases again, but I think that, that uh, for, for some people that don't want to be doing everything themselves, going away from the robo-advisor model and instead looking for a more full-service wealth management firm that is not charging, uh, not earning commissions and that is providing holistic financial advice and using index funds and portfolios, I think that can make a lot of sense for some people. Yeah, exactly. And just to kind of, you know, explain why this is so important. Everyone only thinks about investing in stocks, but that's just one piece of a massive puzzle. You have to think about savings, you have to think about retirement, you think about taxes, incorporation, your business itself. You don't want to get dragged down by spending all your time just thinking about the stock market and investing when there's so many other important things going on. And I know we've touched a lot about fees and the impact of fees, but our overall message isn't, you know, avoid all fees and get the lowest cost index fund at all costs. Our message is understand how detrimental fees can be to your portfolio. So if you're paying a higher fee, just make sure you're getting something for it. I think for a lot of surgeons listening, this is exactly like, for example, hiring an office manager or a business practice consultant. You're going to pay a fee for them to assess your practice and tell you how to make it better. We're not saying that's a bad idea. We're saying if you're paying the office manager, make sure it is making your office better. No one out there would hire someone that's going to decrease their profits in their practice, decrease their number of uh, patients, decrease their business, and then pay them a salary. You want to get value on what you're paying. So that's all we're saying is, you know, just make sure you're getting good value on what you're paying and make sure you're looking into what are your fees and what are you paying? Because a lot of people are unaware of that. Now, you kind of touched on this a little bit, which is one of the biggest problems about trying to find a financial advisor. You know, many people listening will say, this sounds great and I'm interested in this. I just don't know where to start. I definitely don't want to do DIY. I'm not comfortable managing my own money. The robo-advisor sounds great. Maybe now things are a little bit more complex and I want to find a financial advisor. You know, as you know, for you at PWL, there's a minimum investment, as you said. It could be you know, a million, two million dollars, something like that. A lot of people listening are not going to have access to that type of funds or be able to afford that for a long time, maybe not ever. So for a new resident coming out or even let's say someone that's 10 years into practice, they have a loan on their practice, they have a mortgage, they have a family, they're starting to invest, they're starting to save. What is the best practical way for someone to find help with what we're talking about? It's not necessarily easy. There are some directories out there that can be helpful, but I think maybe in a broader sense, the most important things to consider are the compensation model. So I mentioned PWL being a fee-based firm, which means we don't earn commissions. I think that's crucially important. I, I, th I think the incentives to sell a product taint any financial advice. Uh, so that'd be step one, is making sure that you find a firm that has a compensation model that is aligned with you, the, the end client, that, that aligns the interest of the client and the, and the people giving the advice. I, I also think that it's important to, to look for, if you're having someone manage your investments, to look for someone who is a portfolio manager. Now, I mentioned financial advisor not being a regulated title currently in Ontario. Portfolio manager is a regulated title uh, across Canada. And someone who's registered as a portfolio manager has had to meet a significantly higher educational bar than someone who is uh, registered as an investment advisor. So portfolio manager matters. The other really important thing about, about a portfolio manager 
is uh, that they have a legal requirement to act in the best interests of the client. Now, I think that's huge. I mean, having, having the obvious incentive of commissions makes that pretty hard. But when you have an actual legal requirement in place, like a portfolio manager does to act in the best interests of the client, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get someone that's going to give you the kind of advice that, that is truly in your best interest. But I, I think it helps push the needle in the- But I mean, it's a step. Right. I mean, can you imagine a world in which your doctor didn't have, we have a fiduciary responsibility. We can be held accountable by the college. We can be sued. We can be held liable in court. We can lose our license. Can you imagine a world in which your doctors didn't have a legal requirement to actually do anything in your best interest? No, none of us could imagine that. So just think about it when it comes to your finances, you want to try and find someone that hopefully doesn't have a conflict of interest. And maybe, as you said, does have a, a push or a requirement to act in your best interest. And I think some of the other big ones in assessing someone that you're getting advice from are educational requirements. And I think that's something that doctors will uh, appreciate. Traditionally in the financial services business, the bar has been extremely low to call yourself a financial advisor and sell products. I mean, a, a physician would probably be appalled at, at the process that is required to put, put someone in that position to sell financial products. So portfolio manager helps with that, but I think that there are other educational requirements or not requirements or other educational standards that, that people can be looking for when they're seeking advice. The chartered financial analyst designation is not required really for, for anything uh, in financial services. So there aren't that many people, especially in the investment advice, wealth management space that, that actually have it. But it is, I think, the, the most challenging professional designation specific to what we're talking about that exists out there. It's three years of extremely hard study with some very comprehensive exams and a, at a very low pass rate. So that, that's a big one. But there are other ones like the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner. And I think particularly when you're looking for maybe obviously financial planning advice, uh, the CFP is something that, that I think is pretty important to be looking out for. But again, when you, when you think about, I mean, you can probably give a, be a better example than uh, than I can, but you would hope that your doctor has met certain educational requirements. I think you would hope for the same thing when you're looking for someone to give you financial advice. Great. So hopefully that helps people try and figure out how to get involved in this space and, and get their money working for them. Because as we said, it's incredibly important to invest and, and build up your, your money over time and take advantage of that compounding interest. And, you know, it's not easy to, to get started and Unfortunately, uh, it's very, very difficult to know who to trust and who to kind of start with, but hopefully that'll give you some resources and kind of help you help guide you as to how to start. All right, let's jump into the resident reminder. Due to the length of this episode, we wanted to do something quick and uh, we wanted to talk about something that always comes up on mock oral boards. We actually talked about exam. A, every exam because we talked about a previous episode how cleft craniofacial is one of the most difficult topics to study for and to examine on. So one thing they always ask because it's such an easy question is the surgical timing of cleft repair. So your cleft lip, your palate, orthodontic, all that kind of stuff. So there are some great resources, but they all kind of point to the same table. So Oscar, I'll let you jump in and just give give everyone an overview of what is the normal timing that people will do for this and, and, cleft repair. And again, I, I we like kind of like you just said, Wendell, these are appropriate yeah, approximate ages that they give. And one resource will say a little bit different than the other, but overall, they're pretty much all saying the same timing. And so the sequencing that 
every exam is going to ask you or every oral or every mock oral is going to ask you at some point when you're in the cranial facial section is, okay, can you stage out the sequencing for cleft repair? And so the first one is cleft lip repair, usually done after 10 weeks or the rule of 10. Cleft palate repairs, anywhere from 9 to 18 months. And then you have to take things into consideration, as in speech and maxillary hypoplasia that you can cause with that. So those are things that we can talk about later. Pharyngeal flap or pharyngeoplasties, usually done at three to five years based on speech development again. And then maxillary alveolar reconstruction with bone grafting. Anywhere, here we have six to nine years, but it can be anywhere to six to 12 years or in adulthood too. Sometimes it's just not done. Cleft orthognathic surgery, where in girls is a little bit different than boys, 14 to 16 or 16 to 18. So pretty much once you're getting to a little bit later adulthood. And then cleft rhinoplasty, which is usually after age five years, but preferably at skeletal maturity and after orthognathic surgery, when you can possibly do that. And then the last thing would be cleft lip revision. Anytime once the initial remodeling of the scar has matured, but it's best performed after five years of age. And so again, those are just brief overviews where if you look at different resources, you might get a slight variation, but that's pretty much the numbers that you're going to read in most textbooks. Exactly. And if you memorize the numbers Oscar just gave you, if you memorize that table, you're going to get full marks on the exam, full marks on your oral, because that is the general table that everyone kind of remembers. Before we dive a little bit into each kind of repair, Oscar, what was your experience at U of T as far as cleft, craniofacial? Did you manage to get exposed to that other than your off-service rotations, obviously? So, so yeah, so I'm not going to count my off-service rotation because everyone can throw in their off-service rotation. And I don't really think that's fair. I think the real rotation or the real experience you're going to get is the one on your on your home rotation. So when you're actually on your oral surgery rotation. And in that sense, we got a decent exposure, I will say, to cleft alveolar grafting. I will say we have the big kind of bully in the backyard, right in our backyard, which is sick kids. Okay. And so that's a world renowned pediatric center. So to, to think that we're going to be doing any primary lip or primary palate repairs is just pretty naive for us to think, to be honest. Um, so we didn't really do much of that, but we did see a decent amount of alveolar grafting and we were seeing it more in the adult population, people who have had a failed graft when they were younger or who have come and came a little bit older to Canada and didn't have that initial repair. We did have cleft palate repairs. Again, they were more secondary when they had a young one maybe and it failed. And then we were doing a repair a little bit later in adulthood. Or if we were seeing more of a, of a person who, again, didn't have an initial repair done and they had a residual fistula and that we were doing that. But overall, mainly the alveolar grafting part, and we did see a sum in orthognathic. So we did have a couple of cases that we were doing revision orthognathic surgeries. Um, that was done by Dr. Caminiti, where we were putting distractors on. But if you ask me, big experience in the cleft lip or cleft palate, no, I wouldn't say that's our strong suit at all. How about you? Yeah, so at McGill, we're fortunate that, you know, our program director, Dr. Jean-Vive Chiasson, she did a fellowship in cleft craniofacial, actually at Western with the plastic surgeon. So once again, though, politics, plastics, OMFS, yeah. the way it works at McGill is all the primary lips and palates are done by plastics, but luckily all the alveolar grafting is done by her. Like every single case goes Great. to her. So we did a ton of uh, hips and and alveolar grafting in kids at the appropriate age. I was going to ask you, I was going to jump into that. What, time, what age group are you seeing these patients at? So, you know, we would usually, we were going to jump in about, you know, the classification of alveolar grafting. But when people talk about that, they talk about, you know, primary bone grafting if they're less than two years of age, early secondary bone grafting if they're two to six, secondary bone grafting if they're seven to 12. Late secondary, if they're an adult, that's kind of what you were mentioning. You know, maybe they just hadn't ever had it repaired. 
and then there's grafting at the time of the Lafort one, and then revision grafting. So I would say all the cases that I did when they were children was always under the category of secondary bone grafting, you know, seven to 12. Um, she would always base things on, let's say, the lateral incisor development, if there is a lateral, or sometimes a canine if there's no lateral, sometimes you're central based on where things are. Um, there's kind of a finesse in knowing which tooth to follow and when to do the graft. But that was the majority of cases. I liked it because it gave us great exposure to a procedure that oral surgeons can do, which is uh, alveolar grafting to the alveolus. It really should be our wheelhouse. It should be what we're doing. It really is. Yeah. And it gave us a great practice on also doing hip grafts in children, which was nice. Otherwise, we wouldn't have really done any. And with the trend these days, more and more away from uh, anterior crest bone grafts, you know, with all these bone substitutes or other things, uh, BMP, et cetera, it was a good experience to get more hip grafts that way. And I will say, you know, for adults, luckily, once they get to the adult level, it becomes more referral based. So I did get to see two lip revisions, for example. I know my co-residents saw kind of what you were saying, grafting in a later stage for a patient that never had it repaired. So also a cleft rhinoplasty, you know, an adult either wanted a revision or was referred directly to her. So we did get a little bit of a smattering experience. And what I will say is, although it's not something I could ever do without fellowship training, when it comes to exams or just being able to talk to referrals or understand what someone's talking about, I read nasal anatomy like 4 million times and it was so confusing. And then you see one cleft rhinoplasty and you're like, that's what that meant. Yes. Yes. That's what they mean. That's what this looks like. It just, it clicks. The nose is a hard thing to kind of study on your own and three-dimensionally picture it. And then you see it and you're like, oh, that's that incision or that's what you're doing with that technique. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we didn't do, which I'm really excited about because I actually have a case coming up here in Charlotte is what we mentioned about grafting at the time of the Lafort one. So people that know kind of like the Posnick approach or different approaches with this, you'll know that in an adult, sometimes if they were never repaired or you intentionally don't repair, you then at the time of the Lafort, it becomes pretty much a segmental and you close the gap yeah. at that time or you graft at that time, which sounds really cool. Never seen it though. Uh, but I have a case coming up where it is that they have a residual cleft that's going to be grafted at the same time with an absent lateral. That's, so it's going, that's be, going to be pretty nice to see. It's going to be nice to see. It's going to be interesting to see kind of how it works. It's weird. You have a maxilla that you haven't really down fractured or done any cuts yet, but you ha- kind of have a natural cleft, a natural segmentation. So that's going to be interesting to see for sure. And I'll definitely give you an update as to how that case went. But I just think as far as a resume reminder goes, just as a quick topic, as you said, people are going to be asked this. I guarantee every single resident is going to be asked this question at some point in their residency. You got to know it. You got to memorize it. Like there's no question. There's some things where like, like last time we talked about the more advanced topic. This is one that all residents should know and you should know early on because you're going to be expected to own it even as a junior because it is more theory here. Exactly. So that was a resident reminder for this episode. Now let's jump into some recommendations. So our astute listeners will realize that we don't have a journal club for this episode. And that's kind of what we mentioned about having one big mega episode and dividing two parts. We knew that if we had a journal club in both episodes and a resident reminder, and it would just be too long for both and too much to do, especially with not having access to the September and October editions of the JOMS. So what we wanted to do is divide it up. So we're going to jump into recommendations. Oscar, I'll let you go first. So actually, the podcast and knowing the kind of the topics that we're going to talk about for the next 
two episodes of September, October kind of got me thinking what I want to look at something show like this. And I started looking up financial shows or business shows. And the one I wanted that I wanted everyone was raving about saying was really good is Succession. So I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't. Um, it's on HBO and it's- You're a big of, HBO I, guy now, eh? You got Game of Thrones, you got HBO. Sopranos. Are you well, getting paid by HBO? A, is this a shameless plug or just a plug for <laughs> HBO? No, this is, this is, I'm no longer a resident so I can pay for HBO yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I started watching it and it's pretty much the gist of it is it's a wealthy family where the dad is kind of getting a little bit older and wants to think of a plan of how to- pass on his company and who he's going to pass it on to. But in reality, doesn't really want to pass on the company. It's a really good show. And so, yeah, the episodes are an hour long. So we were talking about shorter episodes last time. So the episodes are an hour long, but awesome. The characters are really well done. And the premise of the show is really great. So I've really enjoyed that one so far. Yeah, no, that's great. HBO always does phenomenal shows. So I think you almost can't go wrong if you pick an HBO show. I'm going to go to kind of a, a change of pace that I mentioned in a previous episode about reading books. And previously, I talked about reading fiction books and how I was enjoying kind of murder mysteries or things like that, and just something to kind of stimulate the mind and not have to focus on memorization. But one book series that I started reading and I'm on the last book of is, I don't know if you've ever heard of Atul Gawande. No, I haven't. So he's a general surgeon in Boston. And he wrote four books and they're completely unrelated. So you can read them in any order. I actually read them in a random order. But basically the four books are Complications is the first book where he talks about why complications happen, how we deal with them and like our perceptions on complications. I lied. I did hear about this. I just didn't obviously know. I didn't attribute the name. Yeah, to the yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. People have definitely yeah. a lot of times heard of the books, but may not know the name. Yeah. The second yeah. one's called Better. And this book was actually given uh, at McGill to all incoming surgery residents. So you get it, they give it to you. And it's really, really good. It just talks about all these different things in life and different aspects of how people tried to innovate to become better and how they kind of change the world. It's the good thing about these books is they're all real life based. So it's things that are happening in the real world and, and things in history. So you learn a lot, but it's not kind of a lecture. It's not a self-help book. It's yeah. not telling you what to do. It's just really opening your eyes. So yeah. that was better. The third one is called The Checklist Manifesto, which is probably his most famous book. And that's because they talk about how they invented the checklist, which is our timeout. You know, at the beginning, it's all like, oh, we have to do the timeout and your patient's name, bracelet, what are we doing? What are our concerns? What's everyone's names? This is how it came to be that never used to exist. So they talk about why they invented the checklist, how other businesses and professions like pilots use checklists, how they save lives, like all the data. It's just mind blowing how a that's simple tiny checklist changed the entire world. That is so interesting. That's pretty awesome right there. So that was the third book. And then the fourth book uh, was Being Mortal. That one's about aging, obviously, and nursing homes and our care as we age. That one was by far the hardest to read, but the most eye-opening because oh. we really treat the elderly as, oh, do you really need that? You're old. Or what are the chances you're going to survive this? Or I need to refer you to the hospital or you're getting really sick, so maybe you need to be in a nursing home. And it just opens your eyes to what matters to people as they age yeah. and how important you know, being autonomous is and having your own goals are. And they just give some examples and talk about his experience. So the first book, Complications, is when he's a resident. So you get that kind of resident experience, but all the other three books, he's a uh, staff. So you get that kind of experience and actual cases that he's worked on. So as far as nonfiction books go, thoroughly enjoyed all four of them. They're really easy to read. They're all pretty quick. And I highly, highly recommend them. 
And I'm not really a book person, but that those actually sound very interesting. Yeah, exactly. So I think yeah. what I would do if you're a listener and you want to get into reading or you want to read a nonfiction book, because I did have some people text me like, oh, look what I started reading. Thanks for mentioning that on the podcast. So people are starting to appreciate kind of our recommendations for sure. I would say just go based on the description of what I said for each one of the four books. You can pick any one of the four you want. They're all kind of similar in that way and they're all phenomenal. So whatever kind of spoke to you the most, I would pick that. And if you like it, just pick another one of his. There's only four of them. So you really, really can't go wrong. No, that's great. All right. That wraps up TNT episode five. Once again, we hope you enjoyed this episode and enjoyed our great interview with Ben Felix. This was part one. We do have part two coming up next month so look forward to that if you want to reach out to us you can still email us we will be checking our emails and responding on a future episode it's teeth and titanium omfs at gmail.com that's it for this episode we'll see you next time take care guys